WNYC Studios is brought to you by Zbiotics. Seize the day after a night of drinks with Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink. Zbiotics was invented by PhD scientists to break down the byproduct of alcohol, which is most responsible for making you feel crummy the next day. Drink Zbiotics before your first drink, drink responsibly, and you'll wake up refreshed and ready to take on the day. Try it for yourself at zbiotics.com/wnyc and get 15% off your first order when you use WNYC at checkout. That's zbiotics.com/wnyc and use the code WNYC at checkout for 15% off. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate. Then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, I'm Michael Loinger, and this is the On the Media Podcast Extra. This month, it was announced that De La Soul's amazing music is finally streaming, just in time for the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. Today, this morning, you can actually listen to the De La Soul yeah. catalog. It's an amazing, amazing thing to happen. Literally. To say listeners are overjoyed would be an understatement. Only a few days after their 2023 streaming debut, their 1989 album, Three Feet High and Rising, soared to number five on the UK album chart, even topping their original 1990 high of 13. And this should be no surprise. The group had a towering presence in hip-hop in the 80s and 90s. Their playful ingenuity and eccentricity inspired so many great artists, like the Beastie Boys, Childish Gambino, Outkast, and The Far Side. But what kept De La Soul's music off Spotify and Apple Music, and thus largely out of the public imagination, was copyright law and record label infighting, and legal restrictions surrounding sampling. You know, DJs and hip-hop producers taking snippets of records and stitching them together to form sonic collages and infectious beats. In an interview from 2018, De La Soul members Trugoy the Dove and Maceo reflected on a series of copyright battles. The biggest fear is just almost feeling like you're being written out of history. That's how big... Being written out of history, let alone financially being taken advantage of. You know, feeling like the workhorse, the mule for something you don't really benefit from at all. I spoke to Dan Charnas. He's the author of Dilla Time, The Life and Afterlife of the Hip-Hop Producer Who Reinvented Rhythm, and a recent piece in Slate titled It's Time to Legalize Sampling. We began the interview discussing De La Soul's song, Cool Breeze on the Rocks. It is a complete riot of a sonic collage. Keep on Rock's the best. These little excerpts of songs are talking to each other. At the very end where Michael Jackson begins singing, I want to rock with you. But the word rock is cut out and instead Prince Paul inserts Run from Run DMC screaming. Right? Right in the middle of it. And it it does exactly that. See what you did? You laughed, right? 
And my mentor, Rick Rubin, very pointedly says, you know, when people laugh like that at something, you know that something genius is happening. It let us all know that this was going to be a new way to express ourselves in this sort of postmodern referential era. Another moment was, you know, the very first track on the album, The Magic Number. It's based on a sample of Schoolhouse Rock. That's the first bit of music that you hear on this album. And this is something that Generation X has grown up with. But we never expect to hear it on a hip-hop record. And here they are rapping over Schoolhouse Rock. And then they're getting it to talk to Johnny Cash, which is talking to Eddie Murphy in this track. It is incredibly, deeply, deeply funny, but also deeply serious in its humor. And that really is the moment that cracks open this idea of how you can use this music to talk to culture, to talk to history, to talk to the future, to speak to the present. In a way, the sampling kept it kind of anchored to the past because until recently, we weren't able to hear this music on the streaming services. What was it legally that kept this album tied up and collecting dust in record bins rather than streaming online? There was a huge issue of uncleared samples. The dispute between the group and their former label, Tommy Boy, was essentially, as I gather, about who was going to pay Who's going to pay for these uncleared samples? That's correct. Was it going to come out of the record company's share or was it going to come out of the artist's share? Reservoir Music came in and I think they essentially bought Tommy Boy's sound recordings and injected the cash that enabled some of these samples to clear. But some of them were not clearable, including that song, Cool Breeze on the Rocks. So they literally lifted out that incredible collage and left essentially, I don't know, nothing. An echo. <laughs> Contestant number one, do you have the answers? Um, I wish my cousin Nag was here. He knows these things. No, I'm sorry, I don't. I know it had to be heartbreaking for Paul, but it made me super angry because this is a landmark work of American culture. And not one of those songs on De La Soul's album infringes on the ability of those copyright owners, whether of the song ideas or the recordings themselves, does not prevent them from making money, does not get in the way of their ability to market their own music. In fact, there's an argument to be made that it would help. It's really this ridiculous overextension of moral rights so that the copyright owners, the, the record labels, can charge anything they want for any piece of music that's being sampled and prevent creators from creating in the way that we all create now. It's not like it's just rap music. Sampling breakbeats and using digital loops became one of the major ways that pop music was created from the 1980s onward. Yeah, that's house, electronic music, which is yes. everything. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if I take you back to 1990 and we listen to Millie Vanilli. Girl, you know it's true. Uh, 
two of their biggest hits in 1990 had a sample of Ashley's Roach Clip by Chuck Brown and the Soul Search, a very famous breakbeat record. It's subsided a bit, that way of making music, because there is such a chilling effect, because there are essentially zero protections for sampling. Maybe the kind of low-hanging fruit response to that would be something like, why can't producers just sample from a set of previously cleared songs to avoid the copyright issues altogether? You know, why don't they just do that? Why aren't they just using rights-free breaks and samples and avoiding this headache? Well, that response, though understandable, comes from a place of not knowing what hip-hop is and what sampled music really is. It's a reference to history. It's not just, ooh, I can't play the drums, and let me find somebody who can play the drums and loop it up. That's what people really think sampling is. It's not. The reason that everybody samples the Honey Drippers impeach the president... Or Melvin Bliss's synthetic substitution. Why you don't know the names of those records, but everybody samples them, is that they are a common language between MCs, producers, singers, audiences. It's the language of a culture. Every bit as much as the one, four, five chord progression, which is completely public domain, right? It is the lingua franca of American music, essentially. But the fact that Twist and Shout and La Bamba have the same chord progression and the same top-line melody, they both share that. We've accepted that level of copying. And yet, if somebody like the great late producer Jay Dilla were to take two seconds of a samba record and flip it and reverse it and make it non-recognizable, he could still be sued for that usage. There was a moment where Jay Dilla stopped sampling because he and Q-Tip were sued over a sample of a song called UFO by the group ESG, which is, again, part of that common canon of breakbeat records. And it was something like over $100,000 for the use of this tiny little sample. This is the wink, 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 wink. Very good. <laughs> Look at I love you. ESG. I love ESG. I love Jay Dilla. <laughs> but you and I, frankly, would not know about ESG if it weren't for hip hop. Let's be real. In 1991, the first hip-hop sampling case went to court over New York rapper, DJ, beatboxer, Biz Marquis' right to the use of Gilbert O'Sullivan's 1972 ballad. And federal judge Kevin Duffy opened his opinion with the lines, quote, Thou shalt not steal. What happened with this case and what kind of precedent did it set? It allowed the equation of sampling and interpolation with theft. And my point is this. That's wrong. The devil in all of this is not copying. The devil is deception. The devil is 
putting out a record that confuses the consumer that it's not the record that you think you're buying or not paying for a substantial use. You actually published a biography about Jay Dilla last year called Dilla Time, The Life and Afterlife of the Hip Hop Producer Who Reinvented Rhythm. For listeners who are lucky enough to be encountering his name for the first time, who was Jay Dilla? Jay Dilla had a very short career in the 1990s. He was affiliated with groups like De La Soul and A Tribe Called Quest, Common. Eric Badu. Yes. And he died at the age of 32 in 2006 of a rare blood disease. But in that short life of his, not only was sort of regarded as the master of the sampled art form, but he literally on his machine created a new rhythmic time feel that did not exist before him. Our popular music has had two basic time feels, straight time where every beat is even, swing time where beats are uneven, and Jay Dilla collided those two time feels in what I call Dilla time. Can you give an example of a Dilla Time track by Jay Dilla? Yeah, a song called Come and Get It off of his album Welcome to Detroit in 2001. If you listen to the very first bars of that song, you can hear swing time and straight time really fighting with each other. And it gives this limping drunken quality to the rhythm. It almost seems erratic, but it's not. It's completely deliberate. And that has, for the first time, a beat maker, an electronic music producer, influenced the way that traditional musicians played their instruments and felt musical time. When we hear these beats, we can imagine him at an MPC, at a drum machine, triggering the drum samples in real time with his fingers? Well, no. He programmed them. He used the machine itself to displace the notes. That's a common misconception about Dilla, that all he did was essentially turn off the timing functions of the drum machine, you know, anything that would correct where he placed the note, and instead play freehand. And he did do that for the first part of his career. But when he started working on this drum machine, the MPC, he found that it allowed him to actually displace notes and kind of make them fight each other in a way that was really interesting and disorienting and pleasant. Can you give an example of, of pop music thereafter borrowing Dilla Time? Well, uh, I can think of one very recent one, a song called Sincerity is Scary by the 1975. hi-hats are swung and the snare and the kick are sort of in a swung relationship as well but that's swinging at a different rate than the hi-hats so there is this sort of drunken feel to all of this almost like you're looking at a bunch of small magnets that you're dragging along the floor and they're sort of like following each other as you're dragging them along the floor, but not necessarily staying in the same shape as you drag them along the floor. Can we talk about his album Donuts? It was, I guess you could say, his last official release. It's an experimental hip-hop album, all instrumentals, no rapping, though rappers would eventually rap over some of the beats. For me, it's kind of like a Desert Island disc. So much listenability. 
on Donuts. And then you learn the story behind the album and it gets even richer. Can you kind of set the scene for how Dilla made this album? He got sick in 2003. He was diagnosed with this horrible blood disease and the disease got worse. And so in early 2005, when he gets out of the hospital, he starts creating on his laptop this series of instrumental beats that are incredibly short, incredibly hectic, and use a lot of vocal samples that are essentially not great for MCs to rhyme over because it's hard to rhyme over somebody singing. It's almost like the beats themselves were talking. In the end, it was something like 31 tracks on Donuts, but it gets released right on his birthday, his 32nd birthday, and he dies three days later. I think the reason that it resonates for folks, other than the brilliance of his approach to sampling and using language as a part of what he's sampling, is that it really is an example of what a human does in the face of death. Do we resign ourselves? Do we withdraw from the things that have been meaningful for us? Or do we keep going? And I think one of the things that's so inspiring about Donuts is he kept going, kept making beats until the very end. And then, of course, after he passes, a lot of people are listening to this album and hearing what they feel are messages from him. Yes, I want to ask you about some of the messages because I started listening to this album when I was in high school. And once somebody says to you, there are secret messages in this album, you listen so much closer. <laughs> and yeah. not to be too glib about it, but there is a death of the artist thing going on here where people project sure. deep meaning onto these songs, thinking that they're hearing Dilla from the grave speak to them through the songs that he chose to borrow from. In some ways, it can be heard as a kind of concept album about sampling. I mean, even the first song features this very memorable drum beat. It samples this amazing song called The Worst Band in the World by a British band from the 70s, 10CC. And that original song is itself a satire of the music industry, and it's delightfully meta. One lyric from the song goes, Here I am a record on a A physical object of music singing to us. And Dilla is borrowing from this physical object. It's almost as if he's encouraging us to think of the records themselves that he's using. He's asking us to be aware of his medium and his special relationship to it. Now that's some great analysis, Mike. I've never heard that before. That's great. <laughs> Let's go! I'm convinced. You got me. Let's get to the personal ones. Another song he samples by 10CC on his track called Waves. He's borrowing from a rock song called Johnny Don't Do It. His younger brother, John Yancey, was in college at the time that his brother died and Donuts came out. And there's this moment that I write about in the book, Dilla Time, where John gathers himself. He's got to leave his college town, I believe it's Mount Pleasant in central Michigan, and drive back down to Detroit to be with his family. And so he uses this opportunity in the car, this long car ride, to listen to his brother's new album for the first time. And he has this uncanny moment where he hears his name. He hears the record go... 
And what was uncanny for John was that he said that James, when he was a little kid and he would hang out in the basement while James made beats, he would say, Johnny, Johnny. Like, that's how we would call to him. And so he really felt like his brother was talking to him. And Questlove, on the other end of it, the drummer of the Roots, yes, was listening to this album uh, as somebody who's an expert on sampling and really trying to dissect what Dilla did. And he realized that what Dilla was sampling said, Johnny, don't do it. Johnny, don't do and he took out don't and made it Johnny do it. Now, could he have taken the don't out because it didn't fit rhythmically or melodically? Sure. But I also know for a fact that Dilla, many years previous to this, used vocals on albums and manipulated the words so that they sounded like other words. What was he asking Johnny to do or not do? I think he was just saying, Johnny, do it. Like, Johnny, go. Live life. Go on in life. Yeah. And listen, we don't get to say what James meant. We don't get to do that. None of us do. I do know that when you're sampling a song called When I Die by Motherload, it's pretty obvious why you're sampling it. And he keeps the refrain, when I die, I hope to be a better man than you thought I'd be. Whether or not you buy these hidden messages, as you've said, Donuts was a return to what he did so well. But prior to his work on it, the process of trying to get samples cleared had become so frustrating, he nearly stopped sampling altogether. And which I think speaks to your point of the litigiousness around clearing samples can have a chilling effect on this type of creativity. That's the thing that frustrates me that nobody wants to address We're all so serious about the moral right of artists to deny use, (laughs) right, of parts of their songs or parts of their recordings. But we have nothing to say about the moral right of artists to create in the first place. Sampling has been demonized as copying. How much of that is just racism? I mean, a lot of the people who were defining sampling as an art form were young black people. Well, there are also people who feel that the use of the compulsory license in the 1950s was what allowed any record company to remake R&B songs using white artists and thus cut black folks out of their due equity and access. So Pat Boone remaking Little Richard, for example, or Pat Boone remaking... Fats Domino. There is an argument, you know, that the the compulsory license allowed that. But overall, watch what gets protected and who gets protected by law and watch who doesn't. And in the case of the 1950s with R&B, also the case with hip hop in the 80s and 90s, it certainly isn't young black artists. Most of the folks who were suing were like white artists, British artists, who had essentially created their entire oeuvre out of Black music. And yet looking at what these young Black programmers were doing as somehow unmusical or anathema. Hip-hop's about to turn 50 years old. That's 50 years of great albums by artists who did manage to clear samples. Yep. So... 
the art form has flourished in spite of these legal obstacles. So then what's at stake here? I mean, I would I would disagree. Listen to Paul's Boutique by the Beastie Boys. Listen to Three Feet High and Rising by De La Soul. Listen to Public Enemies, It Takes a Nation of Millions or Fear of a Black Planet. All of those records happened in the late 80s, early 90s. You won't see them anymore. They don't happen anymore. Donuts, that had a lawsuit against it 15 years after Dilla died. It's very difficult to compose in this way without a lot of effort, a lot of time, and the risk of some copyright owner saying no for whatever reason. As an artist, as somebody who loves this music, who's written a biography about the person who was at the apex of this style, and to realize that that person never had any protection for what they practiced is anathema to me. And it's the 50-year anniversary of hip-hop. It's time to speak out on it. Dan, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Dan Charnas is the author of Dilla Time, the life and afterlife of the hip-hop producer who reinvented rhythm. His latest piece for Slate is titled, It's Time to Legalize Sampling. Thanks for listening to the OTM Podcast Extra. On this week's big show, we're airing the second part of our series, The Divided Dial. It's an investigative look at the rise of right-wing talk radio. You don't want to miss it. I'm Michael Lowinger. See ya! At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Wherever you get your podcasts.